Hello again. Welcome back to China Manufacturing Decoded. I'm Adrian and Renault's with me this week again. Hi, Renault. Hey, hi, Adrian. And uh, hi to the listeners. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Hope you're doing okay and everybody listening too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So today's topic is a really great one. You're going to take us through nine ways that importers can save money. And who doesn't like saving money, right? Yes, right. Just before that, yeah, a, a word. We, we got some reaction from from people after we um, we wrote about what happened to uh, to Kate, and and uh, it was uh, the previous episode here, sort of as a bonus. It was published, mm. so. If you have if you have subscribed to this podcast, it's uh, probably the one just before or, or two before this one. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, when yeah. she uh, she actually explained what happened to her when she flew back to China and uh, and they found traces of the virus, even though she was negative, uh, yeah. because they have another way of looking at it, and they sent her to some kind of um, prison hospital, <laughs> and oh. and so on. So yeah, we, we had some. Uh, some feedback on that. Uh, some people really, wow, maybe it's not time to try and go back to China. Right. Oh, my word. Was, yeah. Scary, even. Yeah, and, so uh, scary, yes. I've got a lot of time for China, but this sort of stuff, it kind of makes me feel like I don't know if I want to go at the moment, even though I do want to go. So, yeah, it's it's it's. I kind of feel sad, you know, seeing stories like that. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's the sad situation. International mm. travel to this part of the world is still not to be taken for granted. Yeah. No, no. Well, and certainly there are risks involved that, you know, right. if you're a business person and you're planning on traveling to China soon, even if you can, you need to sort of be aware of it may not be as smooth as, say, you know, traveling from the States to France or Germany or whatever. It's oh. uh, there's, a, there's a lot of extra risks. So so um, that was on a, a blog post on Sophie's uh, blog as well. So I'll leave the link in the show notes here. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you haven't seen it, yeah, definitely check it out. And uh, something to bear in mind if you're planning on traveling to China soon. Oh, oh dear. Yeah, it's uh, oh, yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a good one. So, yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Renaud. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, t- uh, today's topic, saving money. Uh, it's, a, it's a big one in this day and age. But, I mean, look, everybody trying to run a business wants to save money in some way, right? So, uh, specifically for importers, and this isn't exclusive to China at all. So, we're talking about, you know, people who are manufacturing around the world. There are some great ways to save money. I think you've got nine of them, right? Yeah, yeah, I did at least nine of them. Um <laughs> And I start, my first two are actually about avoiding big problems because that's what can kill a company. That's what uh, can be extremely costly. And Mm. number one is to avoid big problems on the manufacturing side, right? So if you have a massive quality issue on an entire batch uh, that's worth maybe $100,000, And it's all lost. I mean, right there, this plus all the extra uh, money and time and so on that you put into this batch, it's really just wasted, right? Plus, Mm. you might be unable to deliver some of your customers and you might have a contract with them with some extra penalties in case you you don't deliver on time and so on and so forth. 
Okay. Uh, or maybe you have a, a massive issue that leads to a delay and then you have to send it by, by air. And even if you force your supplier to pay for that, well, in the long run, the manufacturer will make you pay for it in, you know, mm. one way or another over time. Right. So it's, it's really quite expensive. So, um, how to <laughs> avoid it? I'll respond, you know, tongue in cheek, just work with good manufacturers because good manufacturers don't tend to create big problems. It, it is just much, much, um, you know, it, it happens way, way less with them, right? Mm. Rather than um, immature, unstructured manufacturers who just go by the seat of their pants, don't really know what they're doing, don't really try to put any structure in their business, try to make deals and and <laughs> write the day and see, uh, see, see, see what happens, right? Mm. So really, yeah, spend some time uh, picking the right manufacturers. Also, don't try to bring immature products into mass production because, yeah, everything might be bad if it's immature or it might cause some other issues. And that goes back to the, the new product introduction process that we mentioned a number of times here on this podcast. Mm. It is really quite important if you develop new products or if you rely on your manufacturer to bring new products to, to, to market, well, you know, is it a real product <laughs> uh, or is it just something that they hack together as a prototype and then they want to go straight into mass production and who's going to be the first customer of that? Mm. <laughs> well, that might be quite costly for that, that, that poor first customer. Okay. And there's a number of other things. It's really thinking about the risks here, right? So for example, you ship your products uh, in in cotton boxes, you know, not on pallets and not not in an appropriate way, and they get crushed or, or something like that. And you have to throw them away after, you know, it's even more painful because you have to throw them away after you've paid the supplier in full, very probably. And you've paid for transportation and you've paid for import duties and tariffs and all these kinds of things. And then, and your customers are really counting on it or your internal operations or whoever is the customer, right? For these products, you're waiting for it. Uh, and, and ouch, now it's going to be, you know, maybe it's, if it's retail, it's going to be empty shelves. Ouch. Mm. Yeah, uh, that, that is very, very painful. And sometimes this is, just in an effort to um to you know to, to save a hundred bucks maybe or maybe it's a failure from the buyer to specify what actually uh, the manufacturer should do on, on on this point right so it's really about taking a um, risk analysis kind of uh, uh, point of view you know okay what could go wrong what could go wrong all along right risk-based thinking, as they say in uh, ISO 9001 now, <laughs> but really mm -hmm. try to think of, of the risks, what could happen and really cost you a lot of money. And these are the first thing to work on because if you avoid big and expensive problems, well, that's like, say, you know, it has the same effect on working a lot on uh, gaining a few efficiencies here, cutting costs here, a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here. And then all of that is wiped out by one big problem. 
So I would yeah. think first think of the big problems. So number one was avoid big problems on the manufacturing side, you know, on manufacturing and transportation side. Another one is to avoid big problems on the distribution side, bringing it to market. And especially big problems that happen after the products have been delivered to the end consumers or customers. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are two very big ones. Well, if you set into places like uh, USA, Canada, Australia, UK, European Union, Japan, and, and a few other places, and your products are non-compliant, but they're actually regulated, ouch, um, you might be forced to do a recall, right? And that is extremely expensive. You know, the, doing, being forced to do a recall on, on products is what led a bunch of companies to go bankrupt mm. because it's so expensive. And then you, you lose confidence of your customers. Obviously you, you, you get a bad name for yourself out there, right? This is really no good. And it's not just about looking at the regulations and then saying, okay, this is an electronic product. I sent it to the EU. Okay. It's got, um, um, there's the RED directive under the CE mark and blah, 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 right? Uh, maybe low voltage and we have to do ROS and we have to do REACH. Okay, all of that. Well, there's also the general product directive, right? If your product, um, how to say, if the, 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 the foreseeable use, one of the foreseeable uses of your product might put users at risk, uh, you know, even though no regulation clearly says, you know, this is a problem, there's no like, a technical standard, uh, EN71 kind of standard saying, well, this is absolutely not good, you know, mm -hmm. like sharp points for, um, you know, for, for, for kids' products or something like that. No, you have to also think of all the potential safety-related failures, right? Because this can definitely go into a recall. And same thing in, in, in the US, right? The CSPC and, and um, other um, regulatory bodies like this will, will get down on you if you put mm -hmm. dangerous products on, on the market, okay? So compliance and safety is one thing. And also maybe you have to offer a warranty, you know, or you, you, you accept returns or you set in a distribution channel that accepts returns like Amazon, is the worst because uh, a lot of people return on, on, on Amazon. The return rates are very high. But if you have a product that just stops working very fast, you're going to get some of them return and you're going to get some bad reviews and, and bad comments and and so on. Now that That is painful in the long term. That's lost sales. Uh, and yeah. you could say that's expensive. Well, that's a lot of lost, uh, lost profit, right? You could... You could translate that into a cost in a way. But um, if you offer a warranty or if you allow people to return, that's a cost <laughs> because that product that you get, if they already opened the package and played with it and, and so on, you can people can see it's already been used. Well, you cannot do anything anymore with it. Mm. Maybe you can use it for some testing in-house, but it's nowhere near a, um, a, a new product that is ready to be shipped, Okay. And um, yeah, and if if really they, they just don't work, 
wow, you would have to set up a real workstation and maybe open them and change a component and test it again and so on. And anyway, you need to need to pick a new one, send it to them, uh, pay for the shipment and all, all these things. Now that, mm. all of that together is not cheap. It's not cheap. So that can be extremely expensive. And I remember... Uh, we wrote uh, a blog post on the Agilent blog about about returns, right? The, three, uh, three actually. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, one of them was really like the five different types of returns or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And then the other articles were more about uh, the the causes for it and and so on, right? Yeah. Uh, but it would mm. be good to uh, to link to them. Yeah. Yeah, um, I was uh, I was just talking to Andrew, who wrote those posts actually today, uh, our mm-hmm. um, reliability guru, and we were just talking about Kappa, so corrective mm-hmm. action and preventive actions, and uh, talking about recalls. And I know that you can take action once once you're in a situation where you've got unreliable products that have hit the market. But even he made the point that you know, really, you're talking last resorts and it's it's almost too late at that point and often the only the only mm. option left is a recall but i mean how damaging is that right 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 so if possible do a voluntary recall and before you have sold too many of these devices mm. right but if it's a forced recall ouch if you you know because by, by law in in a lot of places you actually have to declare okay there is a safety issue here to the regulator and then they will have a, a procedure for you to follow right uh, that is yeah that's the worst yeah so that was point number two point number three is think of your products uh, and how they could be re-engineered and that is often the number one way to save money to to you know to cut costs and there's really a methodology about it, and there's a number of books about it. You know, design for manufacturing and assembly. Okay, mm-hmm. so if you have a, maybe you've developed a product, uh, and this is usually more about electromechanical products here. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, apparel or, or like simple furniture or things like that. But let's say you, you you've developed a product, and I don't know all the bill of material. Is uh is is forty five dollars US plus uh plus another whatever uh five dollars of assembly and 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 packing and and so on and then you have shipping etc etc well that um that product right here do you want to just take it as a basis and go for its version two right because products nowadays. Uh, don't tend to last forever. Uh, there are competitive mm. pressures and, and so on. So you, 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 you're planning for your version two. Maybe it's the, the, the right time to rethink it, right? So for example, uh, yeah, try to use more standard parts because it just comes with much fewer issues and you can, you can often get them uh, for, for, for a good price. Uh, try to use fewer parts. So maybe make the molds a bit more complicated, uh, the, the stamping and so on, whatever it is for the, the custom parts, 
try to get as few parts as possible, try to combine them as much as possible, and then try to really think of how to assemble the product in a very streamlined manner, in a very simple way. So if people have to, you know, uh, fumble with this little screw and put it here and this, uh, what are all these spring here and a spring here and a spring here and da, 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 da. And it's very, they really have to fumble with their, with their hands and move things laterally and so on. Um, in, into the product it's very messy it's going to be slow and it's going to be error prone which means rework and which means poor reliability also in the field that's mm. bad right but if people just clock 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 can uh, kit things together in a very simple way all of all of the actions from top to bottom and uh, way fewer things to put together well it's been very well documented, you know, and that's really an excellent way of cutting costs. And there's a great mm-hmm. example. People can uh, can search for the uh, a video about the pro printer, like professional printer, pro printer by IBM. And I think we have a um, we have a page about about design for manufacturing and assembly. Maybe we can link to that. And we we mentioned that video, but you know, they they yes. compare traditional printer takes whatever three minutes or five minutes of assembly time uh, plus again there's more ways to get it wrong so that means you know inspections that find problems and some devices have to be put aside and someone has to rework them and retest them and so on right? mm. all of that is very costly so you redesign this you know and they, they, they redesigned it and it could be made instead of five minutes of assembly you went down to, I forget, something like 30 seconds of assembly. Well, you know, if you make a batch of 5,000, it's a lot of time saved in assembly. And that can actually allow you to make it anywhere in the world, right? Uh, Because you don't have to necessarily be in an area with very low labor prices. Um, Mm. Anyway, I get back to the relocation of manufacturing. Uh, But then... People often don't really think about this, but it's really important. And at the same time, what they call value engineering and value analysis is really to align with what the customers want. And sometimes there's some features that are relatively expensive, but that people don't necessarily value that much, <laughs> right? So yeah, um, yeah maybe maybe go with a, a cheaper and simpler, simpler version. And and you 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 might sell a lot for the same margin. In the case of uh, certain large electronics companies, I'm sure uh, an even higher price point. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, if it comes with a nice, nice feel, nice design, and so on. Yes, mm. right. I have a I have a quick question on oh. this. Let's say we've launched our version one of a product, and mm-hmm. we can see okay, it's selling. Uh, it's as we want it to be. Uh, we would already have probably started doing some work on a version two. And all of this is going to have a, a overlap as we carry on with the iterations of the product so over over the years or the months. Uh, at what point do you think you would be starting to think about re-engineering in terms of finding, you know, lower cost yet still effective parts, for example, for the next mm. version of the product? So... If you're talking big companies like Apple or Sony or, you know, that tend to be great new products kind of companies, yes, definitely. They, and especially with with products that have a one-year 
life cycle and then you know there's a new version every year yeah they're yeah. doing as you are mentioning but most smaller companies do not do that they are thinking of the next device but they are not really working on the design of the next device in general right so when is the time to to go with that uh, i would say when you have sufficient cash flow to get a couple of really smart engineers to look into that and rethink all of this because again mm-hmm. it's a very well established method there are textbooks about this uh, there's a lot of engineers that have been trained to design for manufacturing and assembly but yeah. Uh, also, um, people with a lot of manufacturing experience will be able to provide a lot of great feedback also and ideas. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> whenever you, you, you can put a team on that, I would say, right? Yeah, and it makes you, sense. And, and when you know that the the volumes, you know, sort of justify it, I would say. Because it, mm. it is more engineering work and more, let's say, out of the box kind of engineering work. It takes it's going to take a bit longer to do the the, the design, yep. um, but yeah, I, I'm a big proponent for that. It's it's really great when a team comes to us and says, "Hey, here's the design and here's how it's assembled," and we're like, "Wow, clock, 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 clock!" is like kitting kitting things together and like a Lego, and it, you know, even a kid to, could, could do that. It's uh, wow, nice, you know. <laughs> okay, so this was reengineering the product number three. Number mm-hmm. four is to work more closely with key suppliers, and especially if you are in one specific sort of um, industry or vertical, and maybe over the years you've expanded and expanded the number of suppliers that you work with. Well, maybe you need to work with fewer key suppliers right uh, the fewer suppliers and consolidate them and have some you know a few key suppliers for the things that you you purchase a lot of right and that's really the ikea model and this, the, the, there was a uh, a book about strategic sourcing that came out i don't know uh, seven or eight years ago uh, by someone who was working at ikea and explained how to do you know it's really they work closely with the supplier to understand the their cost profile and everything. And then they say, okay, these are the fixed costs. This is this, this. Okay. If we increase the volume by two, then your cost per unit will go down 25% or something. Right. And then they, they try to pump up the volume as they say, and over time they, they actually saw costs going, going down and going down. Right. And this cannot keep going forever, of course, but for a good 20, 25 years, they uh, they really reap the benefits out of this. Mm. Now, there's the opposite, <laughs> right? Because it's not like there's one strategy that will work for everybody. <laughs> so point number five is to actually use competition in your supply base to put some, uh, some pressure on your current suppliers and um, sort of extract better pricing from them right mm. and this is what a lot of companies are doing because it's it's much easier than what i just said before right especially these days i mean you you go on alibaba global sources and and you 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 contact you know if you're in a commodity business where there's a bunch of different suppliers and the products or their parts maybe the key parts for your products 
are, are um, not really differentiated and you just look for the price for a certain spec, well, in one day you can compare pricing from 200 different suppliers. Mm. So it can be really a child's game. It's easy. But yeah, in some cases, some companies have not really done all they can in their regard. So in some cases, that's sort of the low-hanging fruit, right? Because maybe they've been faithful and loyal to a few suppliers that, you know, maybe the owner was feeling that they kind of, uh, they should keep the business with them and not put them under undue pressure or whatever. But then circumstances change and then you get to go back to, to that and say, well, guys, we cannot no longer function like this. Sorry. You have to do a little bit more um, arm length uh, sort of, sourcing work you know sorry mm -hmm. uh, and and you introduce new suppliers that are more competitive and you extract better pricing from from everybody okay in the long run this also doesn't work forever right one point you hit a <laughs> you hit a price and you should not go below that price because if they're not making any money at one point they're going to try to find ways to make money even yeah. behind your back and that is not good okay that was point five and by the way, if you use a sourcing agent that gets, I don't know, for example, 5% or 8% of, of what you pay your suppliers, the sourcing agent doesn't have any incentive to do that, right? Because they, their 5% would be 5% of something smaller. Uh, they could put a lot of work into that and actually get paid less. So you can see really the limitations of the, the model of the, the, the commission sourcing agent that um supposed to make things you know much easier for the buyer yeah but there's some cases like this where the buyer's interest is actually the opposite of the agent's interest so don't don't count on them too much okay mm. the next one is are you working through intermediaries are you are you buying certain things through trading companies and these intermediaries, are they actually adding value? If they're adding value and the percentage of markup that they apply makes sense, that's not a problem at all, right? Actually, another point could be instead of buying direct, you might want to buy through a trading company because in some cases, trading companies add more value than they cost. And, uh, you know, so for example, they might finance things, Right. You you might might work I don't know with a Taiwanese company that uh, has very easy access to financing and, and they their working capital costs them nearly nothing so you buy from the from the factory sorry they buy from the factory they deliver to you and you pay them one month later you know great mm -hmm. and maybe they, they really don't take much margin. But you, your working capital would be much more expensive. So maybe they're saving you money, right? I mean, that's the wool. <laughs> that's a part of the the Foxconn story that people don't really know about. But they, yeah, they get near near unlimited financing from the Taiwanese government, in you know, indirectly. So, wow. when Dell or HP or whoever needs uh, needs some good terms. They go to Foxconn, right? Mm -hmm. And and others, right? We strong and others. It's not just Foxconn. So trading companies can actually save you money. But 
In a lot of cases, what I see is trading companies that are there and the buyer doesn't really know what's going on. They don't have transparency. They never learn about their supply chain and how manufacturing works and so on over time. And yeah, it keeps going for years and years and years. Sometimes trading company is making a pretty fat margin, maybe you know, uh, 15% or 20% while doing very little. Because maybe at the beginning, they did some work to set up the supply chain. But then after that, they just cruise, right? And, oh, okay, the products are moving. They're getting sold. You know, the buyer's happy, the, the manufacturer is okay, and, you know, let's keep going, right? But at one point, that has to stop. It should not keep going forever, you know, except if they're really like a genius, you know, when setting up the supply chain and managing managing things. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's not, not very often the case. And this is most, most often we see it with, Let's say Latin countries, for example, that tend to be big on relationships, maybe uh, Italian companies, Brazilian companies, you know, oh, it's my friend, you know, blah, blah, blah. Oh, we have a great relationship. And they never really dare to uh, to cut them out. Okay. Well, well, well. At one point, the accountants should uh, look into this and ask, you know, what markup are they applying and what value are they providing? Uh, right. Because maybe, well, maybe it's better for them to to hire a purchaser who knows how to buy directly, and and how to manage the foreign manufacturers. So that's um, sometimes it's a very easy sort of low hanging fruit to cut costs. Okay. Hmm. The next one, number seven, would be to relocate manufacturing, and a lot of people are thinking about that. Uh, these days with China because of political instability, but also because of the the, the tariffs from, from the Trump administration that are really not going away. And so if you sell a large amount of products onto the U.S. market, well, that, that's got to be expensive, especially if it's the 20-25% tariffs. That's quite a bit, right? So it's really an incentive to to look around. But it can also be yeah, it can be motivated just by uh, a desire to cut costs. So China's wages are not exactly low these days, right? No. And if there are tariffs on made-in-China products, uh, wow. Well, maybe you maybe you should start to buy from India, and maybe it's five or eight percent more expensive, but you don't have to pay for tariffs. And uh, and maybe it's worth it. You're going to save a, a bit of money. Maybe you should arrange things in Eastern Europe or Turkey. Maybe you should arrange manufacturing maybe in, in Mexico. Um, you know, there's a lot of places around that that might offer a better deal. Now, very often the difficulty is is that people just want to be traders, basically. You know, buy a product, finished product, without really thinking of how it's made, and just reselling it, and just focusing on on the marketing side, right? So they are marketing and distribution companies. They're definitely not marketing. Oh, sorry, manufacturing companies. They don't want to know anything about manufacturing. Well, in that case, it's going to be harder to get out of China. Okay, which brings me to my point number eight, 
is that you might want to internalize manufacturing, you know, do it yourself. That is an enabler to move manufacturing to uh, pretty much any country you would like, right? Mm. Now, not many, not many companies obviously can uh, can handle that, right? An example: we've uh, we've been helping a um, relatively large company that's private equity owned, so they have access to capital if they need. Uh, that that used to be. Uh, they're in the sporting good industry. I cannot be more specific, but yeah. sporting goods in Asia, you know, Taiwanese, right? Uh, they're very, very present in that. And so they had some of their manufacturing in China, some in Taiwan, all handled by manufacturers, uh, by, by, by Taiwanese companies, and maybe some in Vietnam too. And just contract manufacturing, you know, just buying. And these Taiwanese companies were good at making it easy, you know, and then they never really learned how to do manufacturing. They really never learned uh, what it takes to make their product, <laughs> even their main product. They have an idea, but they don't mm. really know. <laughs> and they, they, they're looking at you know places in Europe, places in, uh, in, in Mexico, which makes sense, but then they need a lot of help a lot of the, the the process engineering, manufacturing engineering to plan for the facility and plan for the layout and, and plan for the processes. You know, if we do something from a white page, you know, how much money is it going to be? What is it, what is going to be involved? Um, you know, how much space do we need? And and how long is it going to take to, to put it in place? How to ramp mm. things up slowly, but to avoid any issues, but, you know, not too slowly, right? There's a lot of questions that they have in their minds. And the good the good news is that there are consultants that uh, that help with that, okay? Um, I mean, if, if you're in that case, contact us, right? So uh, sometimes if you have access to the, to the financing, to the, the, you know, the capital to do it, that might be a way to, to save money because really, you might be buying things that are made in a horrible way, you know, in the old uh, batch and queue way um, with very, very long lead times, a lot of working capital use and so on and so forth. Humongous factories where actually there's, there's no need for that much space, um, maybe twice the labor that, that is needed, right? So in that case, it's not about re-engineering the product, which was my point three, but it's re-engineering the, the manufacturing process and doing it yourself. Okay. Mm. That that that's a way. Definitely not something for everybody. But if you are deep into a certain type of product and you feel that it's a way maybe to build a competitive advantage, especially if you bring it to an area close to your market, it means much faster lead time, right? So maybe Eastern Europe for um for Europe, uh, maybe maybe Mexico for the U.S. and Canada. These are great uh, great ways maybe to build a competitive advantage. Um, mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think another example. This is a large company, though Zara, and they do manufacturing way close to home now. Um, it was their model originally. Then yeah, they went over to Asia. I don't know. They kind of diluted their whole model, so I, I, I can't really. <laughs> I don't really know where they are now. 
but that used to be yeah that used to be their uh, their model you know in um, mm. a bunch of little workshops in spain and it was very close to the european markets and they could bring new uh, new styles very fast to the stores and and the competitors could not um, could not fight them on that right so mm. yeah yeah that that's a good example exactly okay and then yeah the last one because we often get these kinds of questions from our clients obviously is how to spend money more wisely on quality inspections on laboratory testing you know on all these sort of recurring costs that well you can't really do away with it until you have perfect suppliers but you know overall if you look at it you know per year well that that might be a lot of money right so mm. there's been a bit of a trend with big companies that certify some uh sub, um, inspectors working for their suppliers and then letting the suppliers do self inspections it's you know that's a good approach for the best suppliers i would say those that have proven with good performance uh that they can be uh, relied on right and that can be in in complement to doing inspection to sending your inspectors right you, you maybe instead of checking 100% of the, the shipments you only ch- check the big shipments or or you you come as a surprise from time to time right that's one way checking earlier so maybe you do i don't know maybe you pay for final inspections and every time it's three four five mondays or even more well maybe it's better to to send someone at the beginning of production maybe as a first article inspection and then you know validate that things are okay at the start of production and then just trust your suppliers to keep going the same way Uh, maybe if you analyze your risks maybe it's better to spend uh, one day of work there, then three days of work at the end of production, right? That's uh, that. When you check earlier, you can detect issues before they become big issues, and and uh, again, it it really depends on the the profile of your risks, right? Another one is simply to do skip skip lot inspections instead of checking all of the all of the batches, maybe only the 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 orders above a certain amount, only for relatively high risk you know medium and high risk products maybe and for from medium and high risk suppliers and then you can do skip lots as i was mentioning uh maybe uh, if they have better performance check them less often you know keep it on a random schedule but basically don't check them 100 of the time right and then for laboratory testing wow that's a deep deep topic for example, you do chemical analysis for certain components that are restricted, basically that are not allowed, and you have five different models or five different materials. You could check them one by one. And maybe if you ask the testing lab for, for a quote, they will quote you for testing them one by one. Uh, but if you think that probably it's all negative, it's all okay, well, you could just bundle them together basically and have have it all tested only once, right? That's an example. Uh, also, reducing the number of uh, materials and colors. If you have a number of different models, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, maybe toys, let's say, uh, and 
the figurines, maybe they get painted in certain colors. Well, if it's always the exact same material, uh, the plastic material, and then it's always the same four colors, it's going to be cheaper to, to test the hen uh, if, if it's 20 different colors and a number of materials, right? Yeah. Um, it might not be as attractive for the market, but you need to find a sweet spot where it's, it's still acceptable by, 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 the mar- by the market. It doesn't really impact, you know, how well the product is going to sell, right? Mm. And there's all kinds of ways to do that. You know, people call it often a reasonable testing plan, right? And are you going to test every batch or, or what, you know? Uh, what are the risks? How to cover the risks? And maybe you're afraid that uh, the supplier might substitute a key material by, by a cheaper material. Well, there might be other ways to check that material, right? Maybe the inspector themselves, they can use a magnet to see what kind of metal, you know, if it's that kind of metal or that, you know, is it aluminum or steel, you know, they, they can uh, they can burn a plastic to see how it burns or whether it burns. Uh, they can they can do a number of little things sometimes to um, to confirm that the, um, the product was not you know adjusted <laughs> uh, the, to 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 ensure that the um, yeah that everything is uh, is is still okay right as as you expect it mm. so yeah and 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 because chemical analysis is quite expensive. Uh, those are my nine ways to uh, cut costs. The list could be much longer, but I'm not sure we, we we should go longer than that. No, this is about an average uh, length of the podcast, I think. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a good one. And uh, again, as we said at the top of the show, everybody's going to be eager to cut costs in one way or another. And there's a lot of options there, some completely different to others, like controlling the kind of inspections and testings that you're doing and maybe cutting back on some where it's appropriate for example that's something that you can just immediately put into action because ultimately you go to your inspection provider and you and you make the change whereas you know uh, relocating manufacturing this is a much larger project but they're all cost saving measures so uh, definitely very very helpful there that's uh, that's good there's going to be a lot of links in the show notes this week because you've written about all of these topics probably multiple times on uh, mm. and also your blog qualityinspection.org so I'll have a good trawl through and find as much related content as I can so um, if you're listening and you want to go deeper just dive into those links and and get reading. Mm. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Okay, well, thanks, Renault, and thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Yep. Thanks again for listening to this podcast brought to you by the Sophie's Group. We're on a mission to provide you with everything you need to manufacture effectively in Asia, including inspections, auditing, new product development support, contract manufacturing, 3PL warehousing and fulfilment, and much, much more across Asia's key manufacturing areas. Visit us at sofeast.com, that's S-O-F-E-A-S-T tcom to learn more and get help. If you've enjoyed the podcast today, please do rate, review and share because it will really help others discover us too.